This, 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 this is mythical. Ear Biscuits is supported by Apartments.com. And if you're looking for an apartment, you know, there's you should get in touch with what it is that you can get most excited about. Maybe that's an apartment with a balcony mm. or windows that face a sunset. Oh, I mean, if you're really gonna get into thinking about it because you are gonna live there. Hardwood floors in the kitchen maybe. Mm. Well, apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all your specific unique boxes. They have powerful tools like amenity filters to make sure your possible future home has all the amenities you need like in-unit washer dryer, air conditioning, dishwasher, balcony. Oh, did you say balcony? Did you say elevator? Some oh. people love a good elevator. Or save searches. You can favor the listings that stood out to you so that you can revisit them and won't lose what could be an amazing future home. I, I like the idea of like one of those things that's usually on top of a barn that says what direction the wind's blowing. Oh, a wind uh, thing, thing. With a rooster. Yeah. Yeah. That. Visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. Welcome to Ear Biscuits, the podcast where two lifelong friends talk about life for a long time. I'm Rhett. And I'm Link. This week at the round table of dim lighting, we are talking about ch 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 changes. Yeah, we Changing asked you. Changing your mind. We asked you uh, where we ask these questions, which is Twitter, at the on the mythical account, uh, to tell us a time that you change your perspective on something. Could be small, like a food preference, could be something big, like a major belief, and why. And boy, we got a lot of responses. Yeah, I'm excited about talking to these, but you know, y- yank in your laptop here so we can we can look at some responses, but, you know, we wanted to talk about this because, and kind of mission accomplished as far as I'm concerned here, because we were hoping that it would just be a a, a refreshing sensation of people sharing how they changed their mind. And I don't know, there's a humility associated with saying, I once thought this, and even if it's a minor preference, but now I think this, yeah. I, I I disagree with my former self about this thing, big or small. Uh, it, it's something to celebrate in this day and age when people just dig in and there's there's no conversations and right. not that this conversation is gonna get political. Yeah, we didn't, we, necessarily. We, I mean, we, we, we got some lighthearted stuff and some heavier stuff, but it really doesn't get into, because we, you know, uh, we talk about those things in other, con- well, there's one thing that kind of gets a little political in this, but anyway, the, one of the reasons I was so excited about talking about this is all the things that you just said. Um, but also I think that, you know, there's a little bit of a selfish, a self-interest in this, which is like, you know, in ways that we have shared on this podcast, we've changed our minds. And I'm kind of fascinated with the reasons why people change their mind. Because I think a lot of times it's not the reason that you state, you know, hmm. and there's just all kinds of factors. And, and I think we got some really honest honest uh, responses and I'm just fascinated with the concept of perspective change and what leads to it. And I like it, like you said, I just think it's so timely because it seems that there's so many people spending more of their energy attempting to change other people's minds in ways that we haven't really seen before in like discourse, right? I was talking to Jesse the other day and I was like, you know, she hates going on Facebook uh, because Facebook has become a place where you kind of just say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, and then argue with people who differ with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I think at first it was kind of like, hey, I'm having a baby. <laughs> and Or look at what I did with my friends. And then it would be like, okay, maybe at once every four years during the presidential election, people might start like, saying what they stood for or whatever. Mm -hmm. But now it's like a really high percentage of the dialogue is just people arguing with each other, but no one's actually moving on anything. Like you said, it's just people continuing to polarize and kind of uh, align themselves with other people who all agree with them. And it's just, there's no end in sight, right? It's discouraging. Yeah, I mean, so we're making a choice to not celebrate people who've said, I changed someone else's mind. Yeah, But right. I ch- I changed my own mind. 
And to see the things that lead to people changing their minds. And and let me just say, of all we read through almost all the responses. Kiko definitely read through all the responses. Um none of them said, I used to think this, and I changed my mind because someone on Facebook argued with me. (laughs) That didn't happen in any one of these. Nobody said that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So 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 let's get into this. I think that um we can start with Aleda. At Aleda two five five forty three sixty one two. There's a lot of those already taken. That's, that's wow. There's a lot of Aledas out there. Two hundred fifty two million five hundred fifty four thousand. Nope. Twenty five million. It's twenty five million. Is that a phone number? We need. Can we put commas in your username so she, we know what call the number, that number actually and is? See if she answers. Oh yeah. Is it? It's not a phone number. It's, no. It's no, It's one two. It's one. Few did one less but digit. We could f- probably figure it out. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're calling an audible. <laughs> this episode is now devoted entirely to trying to get in touch with Elena. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she responded to us at Mythical. I absolutely hate the sound of children singing. <laughs> <laughs> See, you mm. thought we were going to start all serious. No, we're not. And it's going to take us uh, a while. To I get don't know. There. I think this is serious to her. She says, "I used to love it." But then all those singing idol shows came out and now it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. P.S. I'm an elementary school teacher. <laughs> wow. So I wonder if it's the culture of amateur singing in general that maybe inspired a change in the youth that then she experienced personally or is it just the idea of seeing so many I mean, how old do you have to be to be, you gotta be, you got to be like 13 to be on American Idol. Yeah, I think what she means is that, you know, sh- she's surrounded by these elementary school kids who are like singing in chorus and stuff like that. And it's, what what wasn't necessarily uh, pro by any means or splendid, but still cute, lost all of its luster mm-hmm. to the point that she actually said, you know what? I don't like kids singing anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate it. I hate the sound you of ruined children it for me. singing. Television idol, singing idol shows ruined it for her, but, but she made a decision. She's like, you know what? Or sometimes you come to grips with how you've changed and you just, and so that's kind of like a backdoor decision, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and no, she, I don't like this anymore and I'm okay with it. So the decision is owning it. Though it would be, uh, it would make her life easier being an elementary school teacher if she would find a way to like it. Well, she's not a she's not the choral. Well, if she's the if director, well, well, she didn't say that. But if she, she said, "I am an elementary school chorus teacher," <laughs> yeah, it would be tough. Maybe yeah, we would be outing her right now. First of all, uh, well, she kind of outed herself on Twitter. This makes me think of something. But it's not something you're supposed to. It's something you're supposed to like. So I do applaud her in saying. It is a preference, well, but she's standing by it. This is what I'm getting at is, I actually recently rediscovered how much I do like the sound of children singing and this sounds weird, I understand, but let me just. You, you t- you're run, talking about boy, Christmas boys choir situation? I'm talking about Moonrise Kingdom, which I watched oh. recently with the family. Watch me and me and uh, Jesse and Shepard watched it. And uh, I'm I'm beginning to really kind of understand Shepard and understand the kinds of things that he will like, and so, so I was like, Shepard, I have a movie that I want you to watch that I know you are going to like. Mm-hmm. Of course, this is Wes Anderson's Moon, Moonrise Kingdom, um, and right at the beginning, I kind of look at him, and he was just seeing the way things were unfolding and the way things were being described, and he just had this little smile on his face. And then he just kept looking at me and he was just like, I love this. He was like, this is the kind of movie that I really like. Like he was, and he wasn't just saying that because I had planted the thought in his mind. But anyway. Great movie. It's a great movie and I I feel kind of bad about how much I didn't, I loved it. I really liked it when I watched it in the theater. But I didn't realize that this might be my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Oh really? Like I, I did. It, it wasn't in like the top three for me, but I feel like it is now. Anyway, lots of boys choir. You changed your mind about it. Lots of boys choir, which I've always kind of liked the sound of like a boys choir. I've just thought that it, it's got this sort of angelic sound to it. 
But like the way that he uses that music in the movie. There's a time just, and a place. It's so good. It's just so good. So I like the sound of children singing. Well, you like the sound of professional children singing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, not amateurs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Professional children. Kaina is the name of the next respondent at The Real Khaki. I've started drinking my coffee black over the past couple of years. It's important to assert dominance over beverages. Hashtag ear biscuits. Mm, wow, <laughs> uh, there's a lot to unpack here, Kaina. Um, because I, man, the way that I kind of interpret this is, I, I totally relate with the idea that there's something more respectable, in, and, I'm, and I'm not saying this is true, I'm saying I have this perception that lives within my mind that there's something more respectable about drinking coffee black, that it's ultimately better, like if you had to like, rank five people and there was a person who put a bunch of sugar and a bunch of cream in their coffee on one end of the spectrum and there was a person who drank their coffee black on the other end of the spectrum, I would respect the person who drank their coffee black and I don't exactly know why that's the case. It's more hardcore, it's like it implies a toughness. Because there's something to protect yourself from when it comes to coffee. Because coffee's a bit bitter. Yeah, anything. It's when you add, taste. add cream or sugar to it, as you take a sip of your cream-laden coffee. Yeah, we'll get to that. Any in a sugar second. in there? No sugar, but um, I'm a no sugar. I'm a cr butt cream man. A butt cream man. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I use butt cream as well. But every morning, every single morning, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm realizing this when I I make my coffee. And it's, and it's going down into my mug, and then I'm, I go over to the fridge and I reach for the half and half, I have a pang of guilt to this day yeah. because, and because of this sentiment of it's, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a badass if you can drink it mm -hmm. black. Yeah. And here I am, you know, it's like, it's like pouring defeat into my coffee. Yeah. And that's not, okay. You know, I, I have a theory about this. I think there's I think there's two things going on, right? So the legitimate side of the migration from a lot of sugar and a lot of cream in your coffee to black coffee is a legitimate scientific process that happens through with things that are an acquired taste, right? Yeah. So it's like, oh, I don't really like alcohol. Oh, but you know what? I had a wine cooler and no now I now I drink just White wine, oh, I'll, I'll drink just a white wine. Oh, you know what, I tried a red, I tried a Pinot Noir at this party and it was pretty good. And then you work your way up and the next thing you know, you're just putting back like 20 year aged scotch, you know what I'm saying? That's a scientific process of your literal face and mouth <laughs> adjusting to an acquired taste and I think the same thing happens with coffee. So, so there's a, there's an achievement. Right. You know, it's kind of like winning at something. It's the purest if, if you want to look at it that way. It's almost like there's a there's a purity of experience, especially when it comes to good coffee. That's why when you go to a place like Intelligentsia and they've got like a, you know, $8 pour over coffee and you ask for cream in it, they look at you with disdain because mm -hmm. they're like, you're not, you're actually taking. You're not woke. Yeah, well you're not getting the experience that was intended by the person who made this coffee. You're taking the edge off of something that doesn't need the edge off. This isn't Folgers. So I respect that. But I also feel like if you like cream in your coffee more than you like black coffee, that trumps this prog if you're not there yet or you don't want to go there. Listen, I tried for like a year to do black coffee. And I was it was it was multi you know, I had multiple motivations. One was like, okay, it's more healthy because there's no, no, there's less calories in there if it's just coffee. Yeah. But also, it's more badass. But then I just came to the conclusion, I'm not going to try anymore. And then during the p pandemic, I've become what I would call a cafe au lait man. I mean, I'm basically you got that extra time to whip it up. I'm just saying that I'm about fifty percent milk, fifty percent oh. coffee if I can be. And you know what? I love everything about it. So you so you changed your mind and I thought I had too, but I I clearly haven't fully changed my mind to accept my preference. 
and not judge myself. I think that, you know, there seems to be a tinge of pride in her post. It's important to assert dominance over beverages. <laughs> well, I think what she is she doing. She might have been baiting you because I, I, I think this is I, something that you. No, I, I, you listen, she's obviously saying something slightly tongue in cheek. Uh, but I think it is reflective of that sort of cultural expectation of drinking black coffee being more respectable, which incidentally, we've paired this with another question. Well, and but I'm, I'm sorry, before you do, I did want okay. to acknowledge that like, when I was thinking of the ways that I've changed my mind over the years, like I made a decision to start drinking coffee in college because it's like, what am I missing? And is yeah, it, right. you know, is this gonna yeah. be is this gonna be helpful to keep me awake? And you know, so actually, I changed my mind about coffee. You felt like you were general. becoming so, a. So me too. We, we both yeah. started drinking coffee in college, and I think many people do because you're becoming an independent adult, and you're like, this is what adults do. It's the same reason a lot of people start drinking alcohol and don't like it at first. I don't think that that social pressure is all bad or even bad at all. I think it's just a natural part of life and you actually, sometimes social pressure to mature and become an adult and actually go through the process of acquiring a taste. There's some people who are like, okay, the whole acquired taste thing is just bullshit because what you guys are saying is that you don't really like it but you're making yourself like it. So I'm never going down that. But there's a reward at the end of an acquired taste journey. Yeah, someone else made a post right? about uh, whiskey. Exactly, and, it's a uh, super common know, process. I don't think that's all bad, but there is a negative element to it which you're kind of getting at with the judging yourself in the midst of the process, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where I think that uh, Arsha, uh, mythical Zanskaz on Twitter is kind of tapped into something. And this is what they have changed their behavior about, uh, changed their mind about, my behavior I'm a textbook people pleaser, a very anxious person, and have abandonment issues. All my life I've tried never to say no to someone, try to fit into social norms, and be the ideal person. Now, after therapy, I prioritize myself and my mental health. Thank you for sharing this, Arsha, or Arshia. Um, this is by far the most common response that we got to our particular post was you know, related to the topic of um, another way to put it is realizing that your your life is your own, and if you start to trace the motives behind the decisions you're making, if 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 you start pulling on those strings, and they go out to other people or to uh, just other ideas outside of yourself, I I think it it can it can lead to problems, right? Well. It is an interesting balance, right? Because I do believe that social pressure in general, there's a reason that social pressure exists and there's a positive reason, right? We are a collective organism, where we, whether we like it or not and whether Facebook seems to reflect that or not. We are members of a community, we're members of a collective and there's a lot of aspects of our, uh, our personalities and our biology that are kind of tuned towards us getting along in the context of a group. That's where like the concept concept of shame, like the concept of shame is not intrinsically bad from a biological perspective. It comes from something that was actually useful, but yeah, in the modern world, you, you, it's mostly toxic in the way that we experience it, right, and apply it. I mean, yeah, so it it does bear saying that there there are certain things that no one should get away with just because it's their prerogative. Right. There's there's a right. there's a whole litany of those things. Yeah. But there are, you know, if you ex if you know, if you're a if you're a a well-meaning person with a certain level of humility that, you know, starts to understand themselves like uh this person's saying uh through therapy and understanding that you've deprioritized yourself to the point that uh the fact that it's it's your life is not entering the decision matrix. Right, because you know, when you make decisions that are about your health, prioritizing your mental health, making you a better person, you actually become a better member of the collective. And you can, so you can, it's a win-win situation when you, when you understand yourself, right? And so I definitely, listen, I so relate to this, uh, especially the, I mean, the, the part about, 
you know, being a people pleaser, there's things that I continue to unpack, unpack in therapy about just, you know, my, um, my personality and why my personality is what it is, but I am a people pleaser. It's difficult to say no. I do have this sort of idea of what is this, is this is expected of me. And also a lot of times I evaluate the things that I'm doing in the context of how I will be perceived about them. And I have to continually catch myself doing that and then be like, hold on, are you doing this? You doing this for a bad sort of like social reason, so, you, so you'll you be accepted or people will perceive you in a certain way, or are you actually thinking about yourself and what you actually like or what would be good for you? You don't wanna prioritize yourself selfishly so that then it takes advantage of people because that's a whole different, that's a completely different concept, right? This is just about realizing when you don't need to be making a decision because someone else's preference or someone else's perception is the thing that's driving you primarily. Yeah, you can become enslaved to other people's expectations and opinions. Yeah. And you, you can die inside. Yeah. Um, and But realizing that opens the door to to changing your mind. You know, it's, you know, I going back to the beginning, you know, I, I think about the phrase of, it's like when, if somebody says something that makes you change your mind, I, I was thinking about the phrase, if you were to say back to them, you changed my mind. And just the idea that, well, you know, so, sometimes you can, you, can, you can realize that your mind has changed, you can realize that someone has had an influence over you and that it could be a true statement, you changed my mind. But it seems like the more healthy disposition uh, an approach is to say, you know what? I am the one who changes my mind. I can choose mm -hmm. whether I allow someone's influence or you know, not just a person and experience, whatever the case may be to to influence me. But it's you know, giving someone the power, it's, it's giving somebody power over you if you're saying, you know, and maybe it's semantics, but saying you changed my mind versus I think, I think it's important. you, you helped me change my mind. Yeah, you but but yeah. I but I, but I'm in charge again. This is this is this is my life. The decisions that I make, the perspectives that I have, the actions that I take. You know, I'm ultimately culpable for those. You just can't say, "Well, somebody told me to do it." Well, therapy is a perfect example, right? Like that's why good therapists and most therapists don't give advice and they don't tell you what you should think. They ask questions and they lead you through a process of self-discovery mm -hmm. because they understand that, first of all, it ain't gonna last if it's not a personal right. motivated change. And second of all, it's like they don't have the power to do it. Like you don't really have the power to change someone's mind. And this is coming from a person who tries to be persuasive, uh, has a very sort of, I'm out to change people's minds, natural disposition that I have to kind of keep in check just no, reminding myself that people don't change their mind because of, of those kinds of things. Now, before we move on, and we do we have a short break in a second, but I do just want a related thing, just because I was thinking about when we were talking about shame and like changing people's minds and social media and all that stuff, is Brene Brown, I was listening to her recently, and she was talking about how shame is not a good um, tool for social change. In other words, the way to get someone to realize that what they think is wrong, if that's what your goal is, shame is not a great motivator. It actually doesn't do a lot to change people's minds. It just makes them feel shameful, which then kinda, shame usually leads to worse behavior, not like actual change and good behavior. But it seems that that's something that happens on both sides of the, and I don't like to do the whole both sides thing, but, um, one of the things I've observed like as our country has gotten even more polarized this year than it ever was in a time when it seemed like we had a great opportunity to kind of come together, we got more polarized. Both sides tend to point out things about the other side, mischaracterize things about the other side and in the process, the goal is like I'm shaming you because you think this or you believe this or you've identified in this way and that is shameful. It might be true that it's shameful, there are behaviors that are shameful, there are things that you can say and do and things that you can believe that are truly shameful. 
but shaming someone about them doesn't tend to be a great way to change their minds about them. Just a, just a sidebar there. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure ready RAV4, available with all wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, this one's from mythical.joe, at Joe Mythical, <laughs> two different ways. Okay. I've changed my perspective on sick days. Before, I took pride in never being out sick because I'm tough, reliable, resilient. Since COVID, I'm conscientious of being potentially infectious and of other per people's vulnerability. Also, tough folks deserve the rest too, dang it, or deserve rest too. Yeah, I, I, I remember the, you know, when the flu or sickness was coming through um, in years prior, be like, well listen, you know, you'd have to reassure people. It's like, if you don't feel good, don't come in. It's like, remember, you can, you can give it to people and then it, you know, it, it creates a problem where more people are out I don't than think just I you thought, taking one for the team. I honestly don't think that I thought about sickness in that way. I did not think about give it. disease spread. I just thought, I don't feel good, so I don't want to work. And there's a, such a thing as sick days, but at no point would, if you had given me like an opportunity to list the reasons for what, what, why sick days exist or why people should stay out, I would have eventually gotten to, oh, well they can also spread the disease, but I just didn't think about disease spread in general. We think about it now though, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we do. I mean, because every, every connection could mean life or death, serious illness, um, not to mention, you know, at certain points, it's like, okay, shutting down production, our entire, our entire work sphere kind of a thing. If we were to get it or, or certain key personnel were to get it, you know, I was reading um, a heartbreaking article last night. I, it's there's a lot of those going around, um, but it was a nurse talking about basically what her day has become is setting up phone calls and video chats with family members saying goodbye to the people who are dying of COVID, mm. and that the thing that's happening now is it's younger people saying goodbye to their dying parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, as they apologize for having given them COVID. Oh gosh. Because they got together for the holidays. And she said it's just like this heartbreaking thing where people like the last thing they're saying is that, I'm sorry that I didn't take this seriously because now you're, you're dying. We know that you're dying, there's nothing else they can do and it's because I had COVID as a 40 year old or whatever and it was I was okay, uh, but you weren't because you're old. It, obviously it affects you know older people more severely in general, it affects everybody you know, at times, but that was just, yeah. I mean the way that, we're, which is something we've been talking about since the beginning of the pandemic is like, oh like, now, if it's, you know, I would say, you know, a year from now, two years from now, if it's the winter months and you're going to see your older relatives, especially people who might be compromised in their immunity in some way, you, you might wear a mask when you go inside. It's like, right? It's not a violation of your freedom. It's a, it might be a, a gesture that makes sense to save somebody's life. Or if you, especially if, you, if you're going to like a, a, a nursing home to visit somebody. Right. Like where disease can spread so quickly like we're seeing with COVID, like wearing a mask as a visitor in a nursing home will probably become the expectation if not the rule. 
That's not a bad thing. That's just we've learned something, you know. And if you and if if you live close by and you're like, I can see you today, or you know, I f- I'm f- I'm feeling under the weather, Meemaw. I'm just I'll just I'm gonna wait until next week to yeah. see you. Right. I would hope that that's now part of you know the social dynamic that yeah. enough minds have been changed. Yeah. You know, I think to to use this as an example, it's when someone close to you gets severely sick or passes away, as a, it 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 really helps change your perspective on something like this. In general, when you can personalize things, like if you have a, you know, if you don't have anyone in your life that's different than you in a certain way. Um, yeah. You know, and you know, it could be a, a myriad of ways, right? And, but then th- through connection with individuals and it, it, it makes a difference and that's what change, that's, that's the power to change people's minds is in ex- experience and relationship, like in contrast to shame and argument and, or public embarrassment or, um, you know, there's, it doesn't negate the need for repercussions at a certain point for certain actions, but yeah. in, in, a, in a general like, we're we're all human here. Experience and relationships are are so important to to changing minds. I would say it's the it's the most common factor, both for maybe giving people the wrong perspective about something, but also giving people the right perspective mm-hmm. and having them change their mind. Like rooting them in something, and then also taking them uprooting them is usually related to a person. But before we, before we move on, I will just say, as you know, you know, as an employer as we think about mythical moving forward, um, when everybody gets back to the office, whenever that is, um, I do think that the perspective on sick days, uh, there has been a cultural shift and I think it's gonna be, I would say it's gonna be more like, yes, if you think that you might have a cold or, or whatever, uh, you know, don't come in and now we've really sort of made the whole concept of staying at home and you know working from home is like, oh, it's an, it's, Oh, I can be a part of this meeting. I'm on a video chat. Right? Everybody's doing that right now. We've made that so much more of a normal thing mm-hmm. that even if somebody's like, I don't really know if I'm sick or not, but I, I think I should stay home to, to protect you guys and I'm not gonna compromise the work environment, that's going to be a very common thing. So it's not just gonna be like, I'm, if I'm sick, I'm taking a sick day and not coming into work. There might There's gonna be this gray Middle area. Ground which is we're gonna call something, there's gonna be like an official corporate name for it, there probably already is, which is like, I'm sick but I'm working today, so I'm not taking a sick day but I'm not coming in. Like that's going to be a, a big part of the experience and employment moving forward. Ear Biscuits is supported by the farmer's dog. Dogs will eat basically anything you put in front of them. And if you're Barbara, you will like <laughs> seek it out off of tables, counters. That that woman is crazy. <laughs> uh, that woman being my dog. Uh, so it's important to be putting the right kind of food in their bowls. Right, and when you care about your dogs as much as we care about ours, you know, a thoughtful approach to what goes in those bowls Makes sense. Yes, the farmer's dog is real, fresh, healthy food with whole meat and veggies gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve their nutritional value. Just tell them about your dog and they'll deliver personalized vet developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. The meals arrive pre-portioned and in ready to serve packs delivered on your schedule. Millions of meals have been ordered across the country. We've been partnering with the Farmer's Dog for a few years now and they really are as good as they say. It really has never been easier to invest in your dog's health with fresh food. Get 50% off your first box of fresh healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash ear. I like this one, Jade Marie posted, I used to say that I hated all country music when I really just hated the uncle who would always listen to country music. Hmm. No one wanted to hear that opinion though. Yeah, again, this is- we did. This is a case, this is a case of your perception on, your perspective of something is influenced by a relationship in a negative way. Yeah. I, I get it. I mean, didn't you? you but then you realize you you're making a, a decision. You told me a story. You you may have told them a, this story about how you made a decision to not like music because it, your stepsister liked music. Yeah, when I was like in grade school, I don't know. It's you know there was just this. It's not that we hated each other, but there was this She's imp- a stepsister. Yeah, stepsister. There was this implied. I mean, we would argue. We had to share a bathroom. Uh, 
You know, I didn't, uh, let's see, she was probably, you know, at she least. She was like a teenager. At least six, you know, maybe five years older than me, you know? Yeah. And she, she was, she was not, she was just, she was just acting on teenage instinct. Well, and you it, were thrust into each other's lives at a really interesting time, right? Yeah. So I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna like anything that she likes. Including music and oh, all she, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a genre, it was just like music as a thing. So the, there was definitely, I'm sure that that was a statement. I don't like music. I mean, now music is one of my my top passions. Right. Um, but there, so there was a point when it was like, uh, I think once we started, once I started going over to friends' homes and like, oh, they, they're really enjoying music. I gotta change my mind about this or I'm gonna be, I'm, I'm gonna check out of the zeitgeist. I think that those are the terms I used as a third grader. Yeah, zeitgeist. You know, it's sure. like, uh, man, I gotta, I gotta get this new tape. I gotta, I gotta start listening to tapes. Well, and specifically. I changed my mind. I'm proud to say I do like music now. A lot of people don't like country music because of the association and, you know, what are the, whatever you associate that with, right? If it's the parts about the South that embarrass you, uh, which there are parts about everywhere that embarrass everyone who's from them, uh, and if it feels like. Maybe it's like, just a twangy earnestness of it. But but I'm saying that it represents or is associated with a distillation of the things that embarrass you about a place. There's a lot of people, we grew up with a lot of people who are like, I don't, I think that country music isn't sophisticated, so I'm going to not like it. And it, and sometimes you don't even give, you don't even give it a chance. Now I will say, I went through a phase. Now we always liked country music, but we always liked sort of classic country music. And there were a few sort of modern artists. Like I went, I was really into Garth Brooks in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I did not follow him into the Chris Gaines era. Okay, I'm proud to say that I didn't do that. Not because it wasn't country, just because it was horrible. But um, I think that, and then as an adult, like even like right after Jesse and I got married, we went through a couple of years phase where we would listen to like 94.7 in Raleigh, like the modern, modern country. country, and it was so positive and so sweet that there was this sort of like young love, married, starting a family kind of vibe that country music sort of yeah. just unironically embraces that we liked. Um, now when we go back to, I don't listen to much modern country at all right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I love Jason Isbell and Sturgill Simpson, but they kind of are kind of, they, they don't, don't really, they're not they considered, that category. they aren't considered country by a lot of the country people. But when we go back to North Carolina, one of the things that I do as a habit is we listen to local country radio whenever we drive in the car, just to like kind of just dip in completely. And it's it's difficult for me to take, I gotta be honest. Yeah. It's pretty but, difficult. But like eradicating and writing off an entire genre of all country music, uh or you know, someone made the same post, but about electronic music, and then started yeah. ex described how they under began to understand the craftsmanship around it, and they changed their mind about the well. True music has to be has to be created with actual like acoustic instruments, yeah, or you know, like playable instruments, and even that, even that, I don't know. They say the dichotomy a little bit. Dichotomy a little bit differently because you would yeah that's play a big synths and a big boomer like perspective like the way boomers think about rap like you know I've heard many boomers talk about rap as if rap doesn't take any talent right like oh these guys are just standing there and like right. if you go see them in concert there's just music playing and they're walking around right I think we have an appreciation for it because we've tried to do it in parody form you know yeah we've we've tried to be like all right we're gonna do this rap. And when you recognize how hard it is to make it sound good or make it sound anywhere close to what a professional would do, you start realizing that this is, the same thing with like, I've always had this thing about poetry, which is like, okay, so what's the deal with poetry? Yeah, Especially like, poetry that doesn't rhyme. Some of you, <laughs> you know what I mean? It but, just yeah, it's like it's yeah, it's just there's a couple of smattering of words, and then an in, and, a, and a random indention, and then another smattering of words. But I've lived and long. Then it's over. I've lived long enough to know that if I were really to dive into the world of poetry, I would be like, 
I see what makes a good poet. I gotta say, I'm 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 an unsophisticated country boy from North Carolina in a lot of ways, and one of those ways is that my favorite poet is Shel Silverstein, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to say it. Um, but I'm sure that if I understood like the reality of what makes Emily Dickinson good, that I would be like, oh, this isn't this isn't just something that somebody determined. Like, there's a there's actually a reason for this and I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't just start writing things. Everybody thinks that they they're, they can write poetry, right? Yeah. But it, that's not how it works, it's, it's more complex. Um, I think that's all I have to say about country music. John Muller uh, gets, you know, gets really honest here. In fact, begins the post with honestly y'all, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> um, the way, he changed his mind was related to Black Lives Matter. He says, honestly y'all, Black Lives Matter. I was one of those dumb people who got mad at Kaepernick. Kaepernick. Ka <laughs> how do I say that wrong? When I see it, I'm like, I'm gonna say it wrong. Yeah, well you did. Kaepernick, uh, about his protest, but what happened throughout last year really galvanized a 180 degree change for me. Hat tip to Michael Shea Matters and Dave Chappelle as well. Hmm. Yeah, again. Thanks John for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for being honest and vulnerable, you know, publicly. It's not something that happens a lot, especially, you know, you don't hear it a whole lot from uh white guys who say y'all, you know, that this this is something that they change their minds about. So, thanks for doing that. I think that uh, you know, we feel like we can speak with some authority on this issue because we are white boys who grew up in the south and uh, had perspective on these things that uh, we don't think was really based in reality and was ultimately, could ultimately be described as racist, right? Not in your um, classic uh, external explicit expressions of racism that you'd see in like a movie about the Deep South, but more of this, this is something that is in the fabric of the way that we think and we see the world that ultimately is rooted in this idea that whiteness is the standard and whiteness is normal, and it you know it's taken years to to deconstruct that deconstruct that and to see all the places that it impacted and all the ways that it impacted our thinking. I mean, I talked a little bit about this in my letter to a white man uh, that I wrote. In, well, a lot medium. about it. That was the point of yeah, it. Yeah, that was the point. Was to talk to my former self. But the, the I mean, in general, when you say I changed my mind about blank, but then specifically if it's I change my mind about um, systemic racism uh, or, and or the Black Lives Matter movement, that, you know, that, that's, that's a loaded statement, right? Because hmm. it implies that you're coming from a place that is, is, is rooted in uh, the opposite, rooted in, as you just said, like uh, in racism. Yeah. If you trace, if maybe it's not on the surface, but if you trace it back, you you have those tendencies and it's 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 been baked into your your psyche and you've got to scrape it out. Yeah, and, uh, and over, it's also over time. So, but there's a con, so there's a confession in there for real. Yeah, you know. So that's why I I, I applaud John J John. Whenever you whenever you say you change your mind about something, there's all there is it's it's that level of humility to say, especially on this topic, that like. I was wrong about one of the, you know, one of the things that like, you know, if you could just say, I adopt, yes, I, I, I support Black Lives Matter and you just say only the positive, you know, maybe the, th that's great. But to say, I'm coming to grips with what I used to believe and I'm changing is, I, I think that humility is called for, for, um, it, it has so much more of an impact on, on others as well. It's much more powerful. I mean, listen, I, the reason I put that article, I, I wrote that article in that way for two reasons. One is I wasn't trying to be like, hey, I'm an authority on this. It was, it was more like my primary goal this year as it relates to these issues is just to, to listen and learn because I don't, I'm not as well educated and I don't have the personal experience of people of color and what they've gone through uh, but the second thing was, this is the only thing that might have been uh, meaningful and impactful to me in the past, is just hearing someone that I could relate to 
talk about these things, right? And that's why I kind of wrote the letter to my former self. Um, but this is a this is a really difficult thing to change your mind on, especially when you've got lots of people in your community and in the world, frankly, who find all kinds of ways to discredit the movement, right? So it might be anything from like, okay, well, let me tell you what Black Lives Matter did. Black Lives Matter was responsible for violent, you know, riots or however you want to, uh, you know. So saying that there, because there was violence or that uh, property damage or whatever that took place as in conjunction with the the BLM protest, therefore the underlying thing that's being fought for is illegitimate, and you can just write the whole thing off, or you can mischaracterize the movement as this is just a, a Marxist movement that's designed to completely rip apart the fabric of traditional America and therefore I'm going to, again, write off, I don't, I'm not gonna entertain any empathy for this and I'm not going to try to address the central issue that's being, that's being talked about. There's so many sort of corners that you can crawl into to avoid actually dealing with the central issue of the history of systemic racism and the way that it has morphed and changed and gotten even more sort of conniving uh, in more in the more recent past and not as obvious, which makes it even harder to sniff out. But it just takes, honestly, it takes a lot. It takes a lot for people to experience this kind of change. Uh, and we personally have a lot of empathy for the people who uh, are resistant to that change and are experiencing that change, so, you know, Again, like Link said, kudos to John for for sharing this because it's really the only way that we can see real change is the is the people who are, are holding back the change are actually experiencing the change. Ear Biscuits is supported by Mountain Dew. We all get bogged down with the mundane tasks of life, especially this time of year. But isn't it time you take a break from your normal, boring routine? Don't just sit on the sidelines and watch life go by. Get in the game with the bold tropical lime flavor of Mountain Dew Baja Blast. You can be having a blast anywhere. Having a blast at work. Having a blast in traffic. Okay. Having a blast while you file your taxes. What? No, really, we mean it when we say anywhere. With Baja Blast now in stores everywhere, you can be having a blast whenever and wherever you are all year long. So what are you waiting for? Pick up an ice cold Baja Blast today at a store near you and for a limited time with every purchase of Baja Blast in stores and at participating Taco Bell locations, you can collect coins for a chance to get Baja gear or a Taco Bell deal. This swag is available for a limited time only, so do not wait. Grab a Baja Blast and start having a blast right away. No purchase necessary. Open to US residents 18 and over, subject to official rules at BajaBlast.com. Ends June 15th, 2024, void where prohibited. And I, and I just think that it's 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 powerful. I, I, it just bears saying again because it's, you know, it might be easy for us just to say all the all the positive things and to say the right things about the Black Lives Matter movement now because we are in front of these microphones, and you could argue that we have something we have something to lose by saying the the wrong thing. Yeah. I hope you know that's not what's going on and that we're, you know, we're sincere about this, but part of that is saying we've had to change. You know, I think that's kind of the proof in it is saying, well, it's not that I've always been on the right side of this. I've been I was, you know, I grew up on the wrong side of this. Yeah. Um and so making that change is nothing to nothing to brag about. It's right. something that instinctively I'd rather not talk about. Yeah. But again, that's why in general, today we're, we, we're championing people who say, I changed my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which implies that, like, like John was saying, that 180 degree turn. Well, and I think it's significant that, you know, he points out Michael Shea and, and Dave Chappelle, right? And, you know, both of those guys tend to be pretty polarizing figures in their own right, right? You take Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle says a lot of things that are offensive to a lot of people. Uh, he tends to be a very polarizing character. Um, but I find it interesting that somebody like John would say, well, you know, Dave Chappelle was actually responsible, partially responsible for me changing my mind about this central issue. And I think, again, that goes to that this is not some clean process. There's not just this, you know, 
Everybody who thinks right about this is on this side and everybody who thinks wrong about it is on this side and you have to be, you have to talk about this stuff and you have to be right in the every single way that you talk about it and you have to be super, super consistent. When, when we insist on this absolute standard of excellence and complete wokeness in order to accept people, one of the things that we do is we, we lose the ultimate mission, which is not that we all just think exactly the same way and agree on every single thing and have some standard that we hold ourselves accountable to. No, we've got a whole lot of people that we're trying to move in the right direction. The, the goal is and for that, all of us to collectively get better and that, yeah. that in that you have to take into account process. Right. And I think and efficacy. I, and I think of, people like change. Dave, I think honestly, I'm not saying that, again, me saying that I think Dave Chappelle has been a force for good in this particular regard as John is pointing out does not mean that I endorse all of Dave Chappelle's comedy or is all Dave Chappelle's uh uh, perspectives, but all I'm saying is that I don't have to agree with every single thing that somebody does or says in order to be able to say that they've been a force for good about this particular issue and be like, you know what? You did some good work there and that's great. You changed somebody's mind. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change people's mind. We're trying to, like you said, become better as a collective. We're not just trying to be like, Here's the fence between the two sides and I wanna make sure that I keep putting up boards on that fence and make sure everybody's over here on this side and let's keep building that fence higher and higher and higher. No, what we wanna do is we wanna bring the fence down lower and lower and continue to bring people over it. I would much you know? rather be friends with someone who was um, not on the right side of an issue but demonstrated a sincere open mind to it yeah. than someone who believed all the right things and was firmly in the right if you know if you're able to assess that by from any vantage point you know it's just that, that that's not there's there's no grace that's not a reflection of humanity and how you know the the the, the human experience of you know everybody somewhere and is not going to be right about every everything, and they're you're not going to be wrong about most things. And you're going to be wrong about most things. <laughs> Everyone is going to be wrong about most things. It's it's easy to put it in the poetry <laughs> example again. You know, if someone said, you know, I don't, I don't get poetry. It's like you know what? And if I was a poetry scholar, let's say it, it could have been, or, or let's say that's what I was most passionate about. It it's not you have, actually. You I'm, have glasses. I'm with you. I don't get poetry, uh, but. I just wouldn't. I w I don't know that I would want to converse with someone who say I you know I hate poetry, right? You know, it's just versus. I don't I don't think I, I don't understand poetry I hate enough. Jazz. I don't think I understand poetry enough to really appreciate it. That's one way to say it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so yeah. And again, I think that we talk about and these, I we talk about these things in a way that maybe uh, again it's it's if. What I am saying is that I have empathy for people who disagree with me because I disagree with my past self. Right. It's as simple as that. And I don't know, I get so frustrated with the nature of dialogue on both the left and the right because it's as if the goal is to solidify the ranks versus actually make progress and move the collective in the right direction. And I don't know, I just feel like, because um, we get into a place where it's just like, oh, that person said this thing that offended me and therefore every single thing they've ever done or will ever do is illegitimate. It's like, well, I, I'm, I don't wanna treat myself in that way. I don't wanna treat anybody in that way. I wouldn't wanna be treated that way. Because mm -hmm. I'm gonna be wrong. I'm gonna say things that are wrong. I have said things that are wrong. I'll tell you something I was wrong about and it's this next one. <laughs> okay. Just to get, just to lighten it up a little bit, Rachel said, "I insisted we would never have pets inside the house. Then we got our cat, and I insisted she'd never be allowed in the bedroom. But now both our cats sleep in the bed, and I would kill a man if either of them requested it. Oh wow, <laughs> kill a man if the cats requested it. Talk about a a reframing of allegiance. But I mean, yeah, for for years I was like, you know, I I am not going to have pets in the house. I am not." You know that's not who we are, and then I came up with other reasons to tell the kids why it wasn't going to happen. But like I just, 
You know, I didn't like the idea of hair. Mm -hmm. I didn't like the idea of the of the poop, even if the poop was outside. I mean, you don't even want poop on the perimeter. Every single time, I'm just you know, doting over Jade or babying her, you know, the kids still love to point out like, aren't you glad that you were wrong about that? And I was like, <laughs> I, I, you know what? And I, it's an opportunity for me to say, you know what, I'm, kids, I'm glad that that you forced this issue, Lily in particular, with, with the dog. Uh, I'm gonna save any conversation about the cat that does live in our home to for for a, own thing. A, a subsequent thing. Yeah. I will acknowledge that there's we now have a dog and a cat animal living inside of our house. Mm-hmm. Um but I try to acknowledge, yeah, I take those moments to be like, yeah, I'm I am grateful that I have done a complete 180. Like my life is so enriched and then I'll just start gushing about Jade, but really I see it as an opportunity to in an innocuous way on an innocuous topic to say, I w- you know what, I changed my mind. I did change my perspective. It wasn't about being right or being wrong. It's not more about morality here, but it's about humility of saying, you know what, I did change my mind and uh, I disagree with my former self and uh, my, my life is better because I, because I changed than, than it was before. And don't you think that's really the heart of it is the fact that when you didn't have animals in the house, the only thing that you had to go on was the perceived negative aspects of having animals in the house, right? It's like you can't really perceive positives without experiencing them, hmm. but you can kind of anticipate negatives. It's much easier, I don't know why, it's just the way our brains work. But then when you began to experience the love that you can have for a dog, which started, you know, and 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 a love that wasn't the same kind of love that like we had for our dogs growing up, that like we're like yeah. out in the shed in the back kind of thing, you know, that were more like we had just had like a wolf that we happened to <laughs> round up. No, a, inside the house dog that like you receive this physical love from on a regular basis, like your standards will begin to change very quickly because you see the other side of the coin, right? And then you're like, oh, there are gonna be some inconveniences. I mean, one of the things that I think about, and we've talked about this, is when you decide to love something, then you start thinking about the fact that this thing is not, this thing doesn't live as long as me. Like, this dog will die most likely before I will, right? If we both live to our general life expectancy, I'm gonna outlive Barbara. And now I think about, dang, that's gonna be really difficult. Mm-hmm. But I'm still willing to make the sacrifice because of the positive that I'm experiencing right now. It's really about, and, and to, to if you try to take that and map it onto something that is more moral or, you know, I don't know exactly know how you do that. Like how do you get someone to, I think it goes back to what you said, which is, you gotta make the experience personal, right? It's not something that you're just gonna, you can't just sit and think about the idea of a dog in your house, in your head, and come to some conclusion to be like, I love dogs in my house. It's like, you gotta have a dog in the house. You know, you gotta have a friend who challenges your perspective. You gotta see some something in some, you have to have a personal experience in order to, to change your mind about something, ultimately, right? And your personal experience is with, Having a dog in the house and now a cat in the house, and and I'd much rather convey that principle to my kids than having all the answers or or being right. It's it's being willing to be to admit when you're wrong, or when you've changed your mind on something that's not about right or wrong. Even yeah, is more important than 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 being right at at any particular moment. You know, it's because think about how miserable you'd be if the only thing you were doing was focusing on continuing to bolster your predetermined argument that having animals in the house was bad. I can imagine that there are dads out there, moms, brothers, sisters, who I was dead set against having a dog in the house. And now that there's a dog in the house, I'm the person who doesn't like it. And I spend all my time pointing out all the things that the dog is doing that are bad. Like what a miserable existence, versus accepting it and yeah, because and the then positive. then you're like secretly petting the dog, <laughs> you know. But you don't like, want you don't want to be seen, right? You have a secret relationship, and then that gets weird, you know. Right. 
Secret petting. Well, I, you know what? The, there's there's other there's other ones, but we're not going to get to them for okay. the sake of time. Because we'll, we'll do this again. But the fact that we did have such great responses, and we still want to continue to encourage people to respond. And you know, one of the things that we were talking about that I want to talk to them about, I want to talk to you about, is if you've never responded to a prompt on Ear Biscuits, maybe that's because you don't follow us on Twitter, um, or you're not the type of person to to respond to just open-ended questions associated with this show. On the or, internet. Or yeah. on the internet in general. But we want to invite you to take a risk and do that. So. Uh, you fo- if you follow our at mythical Twitter account or our personal accounts, we can try to do a better job of, of retweeting those prompts uh, as well. But if you definitely if you follow the at mythical account, you can see every so often uh, when we post these prompts like this one about uh, tell us about when you changed your mind. We just want to hear from from more of you. We enjoy the familiar faces and the familiar names, and uh, you really get that sense of community. And uh, so we're not complaining about that. But we do think there's a whole group of people who um, just kind of watching. You know, you're, yeah. I bet you're a thoughtful lurker, yeah. and and we want to hear from you on these on these topics. And sometimes sometimes the questions are tough. It might take a little a little time to think about it, but you don't have to answer immediately. You can come back, and we usually give yeah. you know at least a day where you can come back and add to it before we roll everything up. But. Yeah, I mean, like Link said, we definitely appreciate uh, the folks who always respond to the prompts, uh, but we are, you know, really interested in hearing from people who've never responded. Who might say, "I created a Twitter account just so I could respond." So, hashtag Ear Biscuits. Uh, we, you can continue to talk about what we talked about today, but also be looking for that next prompt that we're going to put out there to get your questions. And now I'm going to give my rec because it. it's my week. Um, on Disney Plus, there's there, you know, you can search by all the different brands that they own, like Marvel and Star Wars, and it it goes on from there. And you know, uh, they're doing a lot of things where they're creating content around content, like behind the scenes series for the Mandalorian series, which is absolutely amazing. Um, so I got curious and I was looking around. There's there's lots of that in Marvel, the Marvel section as well, but there's one um, show called Marvel 616, and it's basically this concept of taking principles around the Marvel properties and just exploring these like tertiary ideas or behind the scenes type things. They're all, each episode's completely different, and I've only watched one, so I'm only uh, recommending episode one, which is about the Japanese Spider-Man. Hmm. Now, I have I've had a t-shirt for years that had Spider-Man and then it had Japanese writing underneath right. it and I just thought it was a cool t-shirt. Well, it turns out there's a in Marvel licensed Spider-Man over in Japan to and then they created a television show for Spider-Man and it was entirely different. Hmm. It, it 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 was they, you know, there was some emissary who pitched it to Marvel, and then this it's a documentary on creating an alternate universe, basically a Japanese version of Spider-Man well, it, that is total, totally totally different. Does he have a suit? He, he, he looks, looks the, the same. same. It's the same suit, but he's the action adventure that he's in. Like it's not it's not Peter Parker. Well, that makes sense, <laughs> right? That, and he's not in New York, but. I mean, like he fights robots. He he like drives vehicles. He still behaves like a spider, and, but the and they talk about like how they made the show, and it's just absolutely fascinating. Is this a one-off documentary? It's, it's a it... it's a one-off. Just that one the one episode, um, and the, you know it's it's the all of the people who were involved in it. They even talked to the stuntmen who were like they did. There's this iconic tower in Tokyo, I think it's called the Tokyo Tower. I'm probably getting all this wrong. But well, that's a good guess. Well, I mean, they tell the story of him showing up, of the stuntman showing up on one of his first days and he puts on the Spider-Man costume and then they just tell him, okay, he's just showing up for work to be Spider-Man and they're like, climb the tower. 
with, with no net, no no safety mechanisms, he free climbs this tower and then they use that shot in like the closing or opening credits of the show. I mean, you wanna get your money's worth if someone's gonna put their life on the line. But all the stuff this guy would do, like they would, they didn't have any budget, but they would, it was important that they were like high action. What like, years are we talking he, about? This is the 70s. Okay. And like, so he would fight these gigantic robots because you had to have gigantic robots in, uh, Japanese shows, right? That, that's what that's what all of them were, right? So it's at every turn and everything they do, it's just splendidly strange to us mm-hmm. as Americans who know our Spider-Man. But because you know you, they were able to separate things and there was no internet and like they didn't share shows and Marvel said, do whatever you want with Spider-Man and make it work over here in Japan, but it can't leave Japan. Right, it could be contained at the time. And it could be contained. And so now if you if you watch these clips, it's just like bonkers to us. <laughs> but the, and the stories are equally bonkers. So That's I would great. definitely recommend that, Marvel 616 episode one. Episode one, maybe you'll watch episode two. Thanks for joining us, hashtag Ear Biscuits. <laughs>